Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Your brain needs support. And new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L-theanine, and caffeine. Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus. Stay chill or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome to Techno Roll, a special Let It Roll Maxi series discussing Simon Reynolds' book, Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture, hosted by Nate Wilcox and Ryan Harkness. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.PantheonPodcasts.com. Today, Nate and Ryan discuss hardcore rave, a sound that divided the acid house scene even as rave exploded into greater popularity in Britain from 1990 to 1992. Email us at letterrollpodcast at gmail.com. Pop in those earbuds and enjoy. It's time to let it roll. Or should I say techno roll? I'm your host, Nate Wilcox, joined once again by Ryan Harkness to continue our discussion of Simon Reynolds' Energy Flash, a journey through rave music and dance culture. Today, we're looking at the chapter he calls, and apologies for the bad British accent here, Ardcore, You Know the Score, the second wave of rave, 1990 to 1992. Ryan, are you Ardcore? Uh, well, I mean, truth be told, until I read this book, I never even really heard anybody say, or at least write it like Ardcore. I think, uh, you know, obviously there wasn't a whole lot of writing going on about this thing at the time. So I think it's just, you can hear it in the music. You definitely hear there being a lot of samples of people going Ardcore. But uh, yeah, this is one of those cultural references that just completely went over our heads here in Canada. We always just called it old school hardcore. But I guess at the time it isn't old school. You know, it's kind of like you never called it classic rock back in the day. It was just rock. And now you're old. Yep. <laughs> indeed, indeed. And this was a this was an exciting period that did not get a ton of critical attention. In fact, it got tons of critical opprobrium. The critics did not like this stuff. This is the second wave of rave, the first pioneers of rave. And this is totally focused on Britain, as, as much of the book will be, because that's where a lot of the innovation happened in dance music in the 90s. But this is when the stuff really went pop. The first acid generation, acid house generation had burned out, and a second, much larger generation had emerged. Um, they had suppressed illegal raves, but a, a thriving commercial rave, rave circuit replaced it. And this is the first time that British producers started making their own sound in a real 
impactful way within the acid house category. You'd had hip house producers and sample collage producers like Mars um, and Soul to Soul in that first category uh, emerge. But this is the first time you get a new sound that where the British start making their own records and stop waiting on imports from New York, Detroit, and Chicago. And this is partly because of the technology just got cheap. A program called Cubase got big. It was something you could run on your PC at home. It was a sequencer sampler program. And it fomented what Reynolds calls a DIY revolution reminiscent of punk and an yeah. explosion of independent when, labels. When you look at the democratization of music, it just gets more and more accessible at this point. You went from needing an entire recording studio uh, like to record and musicians to play and instruments to play on. And okay, now you can do things. It stepped up where you can do things with a tape deck, a drum machine and a sampler and synthesizer. But it, all of a sudden you get the personal computer and the digital digital audio workstation or the DAW. And now any kid with a 386 can make some serious music. You don't need a synthesizer. You can just drop samples into your DAW, break beats, synth line stabs, anything. I can't tell you how much it blew my mind at 14 year olds to get screen tracker and, and to be able to do like anything and have it come out sounding if not studio quality definitely rave ready that's right and it was um the other thing they didn't need was songs you didn't even need a song you could just get a rhythm track and start looping and get three to five minutes of stuff print it up on an acetate or take it uh, to a factory and have some records printed up and boom, you are a producer and you are in the record business. So yeah, just in case there's people who, who missed out on our, our, our episode on the, uh, the, the, a tale of three cities where we kind of talked about the distinction between tracks versus songs. It's just, uh, you know, songs having a lot of, uh, baggage as to like what a song is. And then you have a track, which can basically be anything. It can, it jettisons a lot of the conventions of what a song is and allows dance artists to just take the music way out there and and do whatever works on the dance floor. Just take that and, and grind it down to or, or, you know, just push it down to a diamond of a riff and just Absolutely. do that for five minutes. And and you've got a track. And uh, Reynolds says, quote, with its raw futurism, coded lingo and blatant drug references, hardcore was as shocking to outsiders as punk had been in the 70s. And he says hardcore wasn't a term coined just for this scene. It had been a term that had been used to designate scenes where druggy, and I'm quoting again, druggy hedonism and underclass desperation combined with a commitment to the physicality of dance and a no-nonsense functional approach to making music, tracks rather than songs. So this, though, there had been hardcore within the dance scene for a long time. There have been hardcore house, hardcore techno, et cetera. But this is where hardcore becomes a distinctive sound of its own. And he says there's um, a combination, I guess, of five different things that make up hardcore from 1990 to 1993 in Britain. First, the Northern bleep and bass sound with exponents like Warp, records and the unique three was a group that produ a producer group that did it the hip house slash raga sounds of the shut up and dance label coming out of london and that's where the breakbeats get put back into it and uh the anthemic pop rave of enjoy and shades of rhythm heavily influenced by italo house music uh, the belgian and german brutalist techno i guess precursors of gaba but that's where the sort of 
heavy rock ambiance comes into into house and techno. And then it's a precursor of jungles, breakbeat driven pure. So four ingredients and then a, a descendant in jungle. And and that's the thing, like jungle, I think for Reynolds kind of proves his case that he was vindicated and being a supporter of hardcore or eventually becoming a convert to hardcore because as you mentioned in the in the beginning of the book in the intro he started out as one of these quote intelligence dance or progressive house kind of guys and and now he sees that as uh, heresy and i mean a lot of that belgian brutalist techno was also the forefront that like basically the, the the forefather of of trance uh, which obviously kind of crossed over and became mainstream. And I mean, depending on how much you want to give credit or 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 kind of cover your 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 ears and uh, to that, it's still important. That's right. And this stuff goes mainstream. This is all over the charts in Britain in 91 and 92, despite no radio support, which I find fascinating. I mean, it just tells you that Britain is a small country and you don't have to move a ton of units to make a big impact. And then because Britain is this big pop culture exporter, it, it becomes a global impact. Um, and he, he makes some interesting points that, and, and kind of contentious, or I want to sort of pick at one. He's, he quote says that hardcore was simultaneously whiter and blacker than Chicago House or Detroit Techno. And again, I think it's always kind of problematic when you start racializing music, um, smacks of essentialism. But what he's trying to say is that because of Britain's close connection with Jamaica and the number of Caribbean Britons that had immigrated to Britain in the 50s, 60s, 70s, so that by the 80s and 90s, there was a substantial native black population of Britain and a really close connection to Jamaican musical culture. Plus, and so the the, the dub, bass, which had you know been a big part of the sound systems in the 70s and 80s, probably where British sound systems started was in those Jamaican communities. So it was never totally removed from the British dance culture, whereas black Americans or African-Americans tended to reject or resist Jamaican influences in their music. And also hip house, although it started in America, mainly in Chicago, but also some New York producers, Todd Terry jumps to mind, made a lot of cool hip house records, but it never succeeded in the U.S. in a big way. And a lot of that was because of intra-African-American class and cultural conflicts. The hip hop community kind of resisted what they perceived the gay dance community and, and rejected house and didn't want that crossover. And I think there was some of that coming back, you know, like we saw with the Detroit techno crowd, the suburban kids didn't want what they called uh, jitterbugs in their posh GQ reading, you know, dance scene. So hip house never quite made it in the States, but it made it in Britain. And there Let's was go. definitely some influence in there as well coming from Europe because uh, Eurodance doesn't get a lot of credit for its contributions to the scene and the development of dance music. But one of the big staples of Eurodance was having like a hip house verse or two thrown in there by the blackest sounding guy that could find in Holland. And uh, always uplifting too. I loved it. It's always like, follow your dreams, believe in yourself. You got the power. I really love That's that right. stuff. Yeah, you always expect Mr. T to jump in and, and warn kids to stay off drugs uh, in there, too. But let's go ahead and hear our first um, song today. This is LFO uh, doing their song titled LFO, the Leeds Warehouse Mix from 1990.
And that was LFO doing their self-titled song, LFO, or Track, the Leeds Warehouse Mix. Ryan, why did you pick that one to exemplify? I thought that was a good example of bleep and bass. And, uh, you know, the last time we did bleep and bass, the first season, I feel like I didn't give it as much uh, credit as, as, as I should have. And, uh, you know, a big reason for that is because I made the mistake of, uh, of listening to a bunch of crappy YouTube rips of, of all these LFO tracks, like uh, coming off of vinyl. And I, this time I, I did my research through Spotify and I found versions of, of these tracks that were immaculate in their quality. And for all the production that they put on the bass lines and, and on the sub bass and everything else like that, you, you really need to hear it in its in, in, in proper quality. And let me tell you, like a, a vinyl rip, you know, and and this is one of those things I hate about vinyl, because unless you live in a theoretical world where you have a brand new record mastered properly, pressed properly, playing on a good turntable with a good needle and a good cartridge, you're gonna get you're gonna lose a lot of the quality. And if if you're not listening to to this bleep and bass stuff in its crispiest form, you're not gonna get it. And so definitely, uh, I, I'd say kids, uh, you know, get get your Spotify or your title subscription all set up if you're gonna be doing a delve into bleep and bass because it's worth it. Yeah, and you need some good bass response in your speakers as well to hear those uh, basic subtones that that underlie the bleeping. And we talked about how it was more black because it's got more Jamaican influences, the dub influence, and also the breakbeat influence from hip hop, which had been rejected by house and techno and garage producers in the U.S., but adopted here in Britain. But it was also wider, he says, because it brings a, quote, white rock attack to the Detroit blueprint. And it follows the lead of what he calls the, quote, bombastic Belgians and Germans. Apologies, Belgians and Germans. But I mean, it's the land of Beethoven and Wagner. So, you know, I, yeah, OK, they're bombastic musically, I think is fair enough. But, you know, Joey Beltram, who was a New York producer in his track Mintasm, brought in these kind of weird Hoover noises and and turned them into sort of riff-like what they called stabs and bursts of blared noise and kind of brought that middle range of sound back into dance music. It had gotten to where it was kind of just treble and just bass because you clear space out and make that bass really boom. But in this period, people wanted to get aggro with it. They wanted those mid-range sounds back in. And it also... Um, Another quote from Reynolds, hardcore shed the pall of cool that restrained Detroit and raised the music's temperature to a swelter and leads to the phenomenon of sweaty ravers. So this is sort of unhinged stuff for unabashed hedonists who are making no bones about what they're doing. They're taking lots of drugs. The drugs probably aren't as good. Pure E and ecstasy, ecstasy, I mean, is getting harder to find. So you're getting a lot of kind of garbage drugs where they've mixed amphetamine and or LSD in there with something that might have some MDMA in it and it might But not. hey, that, that worked for the 60s kids, so don't worry too much about it. You're still going to have a good time. <laughs> yeah, people are definitely having a good time. And as he describes it, it's not a melting pot, it's a mental pot. And and this is, he wants to give a shout out to quote, the alchemical, alchemical generation, half a million British kids who boldly sacrificed their brain cells to spawn some of the maddest music this planet has ever heard heard so now let's talk about bleep and bass um specifically this is a, a, a northern british scene manchester uh liverpool leeds sheffield that whole neck of the woods it's got two of what he calls the touchstones of hard hardcore a cottage industry and a tight connection to a local community you've got white label records which means they just take it to the factory get it printed up 
slap a white label with barely, you know, just some printing name, title, et cetera, slap it on there, take it to some record stores and sell. You'd print up 500 to 1,000 copies of a 12-inch single and take it to the uh, store. And he also describes there was sort of a virtuous cycle where you had DJs who worked in record shops. They could spin their records in the club and make tracks for the label so they could uh, hang out at the shops and, and talk to the punters, see what people were digging, what people were not digging. Then they can test new tracks on the dance floor, see what gets people moving, what gets that big reaction, and go right back into the, quote, studio or their bedroom or the back room of the record shop, wherever they've got Cubase running, and make those adjustments and, and perfect it. And this is yeah. where – go ahead. This is uh, another technology shift also that allowed the smaller DIY outlets to get a foothold was like from 1983 onwards, the cassette tape started out selling vinyl and it only the disparity only got bigger and bigger. And all of a sudden you have a lot of manufacturing availability for pressing records. And, you know, otherwise that wouldn't have been as cheap or as accessible as it was in the past. So there, there wasn't a bottleneck like in Chicago where one of the only guys who owned a vinyl press also demanded you sign to his label and give away, you know, all the, all your rights. In the UK, it was affordable, it was quick, and the people pressing the music weren't interested in trying to scam everyone because they were too busy doing other stuff. So there was a, there was a technological availability for these guys to be able to just put out a record easily. And, and trust me when I tell you, having printed a couple of records, even just like even 10, 15 years ago, a pain in the ass, really difficult to get time, really difficult to get a good press. Uh, it's it's a it's a nightmare now. So if if these people had the the right kind of situation for them to be able to take advantage of 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 this whole opportunity absolutely because you had all these record plants that have been printing records in the millions in the in the 70s and 80s they hadn't shut down yet and so they're available for business and it was easy for them to fire off a ton of these presses um he gives particular shout outs to the warp label which is out of sheffield steve beckett and rob mitchell they had a specialized record store uh expanded that into a record label that had close ties to local clubs like jive turkey cuba occasions and and they tried and failed to sign the unique three who are kind of the first uh, i don't know if you'd call them the standard bearers for belief and bass but a group out of bradford um, a couple of guys who dj'd at the sound yard and had their own label the chilled label and their track, the theme, was, quote, a 1989 trailblazer whose floor-quaking sub-bass style of Northern House uh, was was pioneered there. And, and Wait for the Bass went top 30. So, um, you know, they, they were uh, on the innovation edge with the Bleep and Bass stuff. And it was also one of these things that when a lot of people heard it, particularly people who had been involved in the scene from the beginning, from its beginnings in Britain anyway, reacted with revulsion and and the bleep and bass name was originally kind of a slur on the style isn't that always the way though <laughs> so often so often but warp records gets back in there um with the forge masters uh track with no name is their first release um and evokes the whole sheffield industrial tradition sheffield's where cabaret voltaire clock dva chalk the human league came out of sheffield so there's a whole tradition tradition there and there's also a lot of studios that are cheap like chalk had built their studio the fawn studio i think i'm pronouncing that right f-o-n um they used the money from their major label deal which was a bus to build the studio that then 
ends up being, you know, getting into the hands of people like the Forge Masters and tons of these records are coming out of there. So sometimes they're using studios as well as their home stuff. Plus, Sheffield had a ton of warehouses and a great place to run illegal parties. Yeah, there's basically no shortage of uh, of empty warehouse space. And I imagine and until the cops get a, get wind of it, then they're not too worried about it. So it's another one of those things where you go to a new place and you kick off something and it's going to be good for a while until all of a sudden the police realize that they have to do their jobs and, and shut you down and <laughs> stuff like that. So it's like it's always it's always at its best before anybody really knows it's happening. Absolutely. And and you had records like Test Tone by Sweet Exorcist, which was included uh, Richard Kirk, who was an alumni of Cabaret Voltaire, partnering with DJ Parrot. Uh, you had low... LFO, like we talked about, that that stood for Low Frequency Oscillations. Uh, Mark Bell and Gez Farley, they went top 20 with the track we played earlier, LFO. Um, and they would be pretty merciless with the technology. They'd create a bass sound, record it to cassette, deliberately distorting the signal, kind of the way Keith Richards used acoustic guitars and cheap cassettes to record the guitar sound of Jumpin' Jack Flash or Street Fighting Man. This, it's a, it's a well-known tech hack. And then they would sample the sound of that cassette. And then that put a lot of pressure on the engineer, the mastering engineer who's cutting the record, who had to take all the filters off the thing and take the risk of burning up their equipment if the bass frequencies were too strong. And there were a couple of records that literally they had to put out the reduced bass version because the bass version was literally too heavy for vinyl. Yeah, you cut your groove too wide and and deep, and it's uh, well. First, you could you could break the cutting head, and that's like a ten thousand dollar oopsie. Or you just basically you just cut yourself a, a a nice flat plate because the groove is so wide and deep that you've just basically erased the, everything on the next on the next turn around. Cool. And let's go ahead and hear our next song. This is uh this is some of that Belgian brutalism stuff we were talking about. This is Pragacon, the Ravelon from nineteen ninety. And that was Pragacon's Rave Alarm from 1990. Not only an example of, of Belgian heavy techno, but also one of these tracks that has annoying noises in there that um, if you're listening at home, you're like, did the phone ring? Is that a police siren? Um, it became a big part of, of the sound to have these panic hysteria inducing sounds in there. Yeah, this is one of those tracks that I picked and it's not it's always a struggle to pick between the tracks that I want to pick and the tracks that embody the, the, the genre or the region region that we're talking about or something that, you know, was actually referenced in, in the book. And this is one of those ones that kind of ticks off the marks for it embodies that, that Belgian sound. And it kind of embodies what we were talking about earlier, where it's adding in a lot of, a lot more mid again with, with the synthesizers and the stabs and, and everything else like that. And of course the, uh, the obnoxious, uh, loud hoopla that kind of defines everything that was hardcore at the time. Absolutely. And Warp Records, this was a stat that kind of blew my mind that they, Warp Records, this tiny little independent, accounted for 2% of UK record sales in 1990 because they had um, hits like Aftermath, who went number 38, 
pop uh, LFO that we mentioned, but they were about to go bankrupt because of a bad distribution deal. And this is something I've talked about all through the, the Let It Roll cycle. Independent labels who have hits are on the hawk for paying for those records to be printed. You generally have to pay at the time of production to the manufacturer, but you don't get paid until after you get it to the distributor who gets it to the record stores who get paid by the customers who then pay the distributor. And if you don't have another hit in your pocket, a lot of times distributors are just like, I've got other bills to pay. You can wait. And so frequently, one of the most dangerous things that can happen to a small record company is a lot of success early on. And that happened to Warp. But LFO I, said, I actually I actually went in there and I, I Googled deep because it fascinated me. I'm like, how bad could this distribution deal be? And according to Warp Records uh, owner Steve Beckett, he says they signed away everything for 10,000 pounds to Rhythm King. So Rhythm <laughs> King gave him 10,000 pounds to write music for them and they and Rhythm King would release it. And then all of a sudden they're selling 100,000 records and they realized that they're not getting a penny and they were like, oh my God, what have we done? So the, the half the label walks away in disgust because obviously you're, you're feeling pretty screwed, but eventually they did, they did get out of that and they, they did survive. But, but when you think about it, yeah, for, for a young naive kid getting 10,000 pounds to just give a, give a label music and have it released, you're thinking that's a pretty good deal because you never imagine all of a sudden that you're going to be pushing real numbers, right? Yeah, that you're going to be 2% of the market. So yeah, that's even worse than what I thought. I thought it was just the usual um, producer war with the distributors, but no, they just signed a terrible deal. But they were saved by LFO's Frequencies album, which is, and I can attest to this, it's one of the few albums, Reynolds calls it one of the quote, dozen or so great albums the EDM genre has yet produced. I enjoyed it quite a few listens. So, um, you know, definitely check out the LFO's Frequency album. And and he says it's more influenced by electro than house or techno. Uh, I'd have to concur. And again, all praise to the electro revival of the 2010s because electro is a genre that for whatever reason, Brewster and Broughton and Reynolds, I think have all kind of overlooked in the discussion of hip hop house and techno electro is a subgenre of, of hip hop, but kind of got blown away uh, by run DMC in 84 and has just never had the critical cachet that I think it probably merits. He also compares, um, Leap and bass to rockabilly as quote alien musics that came out of nowhere that flouted accepted notions of melody and meaningfulness and offensively asserted the priority of rhythm and the backbeat. He also compares it to early 60s guitar instrumentals, which fascinated teens with gimmicky futurism and otherworldly sheen. So yeah, this is this uh, is a, a fun genre. And I think it gives Reynolds a chance to indulge his rockist background, which I'm all for as a as a recovering rockist myself. It, it puts it in terms I can understand when you connect it to rock and roll history. Yeah, the uh, the the bleeping bass is if you want to sit there and, and really and really dig into some 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 primal synthesizer sounds sequenced in like a like a drum machine. Really, that's that's it, it's not so much of a melody as it is a a drum beat of synthesizer sounds. And uh, so I can see it as one of those quirky things that geeky kids want to kind of sit there and really just get into. Yeah, and old folks are just like, what is this noise? Turn this garbage off. And here. He also brings up a, a group called Orbital, which we talked a little bit about in the first episode, Paul and Phil Hartnell, and he calls them the greatest of all the non-warp outfits. And in the first 
episode of the series, I probably went a little overboard. Reynolds sort of disavowed Orbital's later work, but he did drop me a note and emphasize that he wanted to point out that Chime, the first single, which went to number 17 in Britain, he calls it the British Strings of Life, Derek May's classic uh, track is Rhythm. Is rhythm. Um, yeah, there was a, uh, at, at the beginning of the book, he explained how he was having a difficult time understanding Rafe because he was looking at it album-based. And the only people releasing albums were were kind of these more hoity-toity artists that weren't in the trenches of the clubs. Or even even the the club DJs, when they would release uh, an artist album, they, they, would, they would step away from the dance floor sounds and they would make this other thing. So he was kind of c- commenting about the fact that he was listening to it completely the wrong way way so i remember you you were kind of say this is this is orbital doing it completely the wrong way with chime but it was more just about the fact that orbital was releasing these albums that and the albums themselves weren't really the way that you should go and experience rave music you need to go and experience rave music at a rave to understand the rave music yeah and it was reynolds getting it completely wrong more so than orbital um and yeah and he he says it's a rave anthem to this day but he points out that they quickly distanced themselves from hardcore rave, and that's where they kind of came into that intelligent, progressive uh, trance stuff that he he sort of disavows. And then he's uh, going to take it south. Let's go ahead and take a sponsor break, and when we come back, we'll talk about what's going on in London at the same time. So yeah, while bleeping bass is going on in the north, uh, there's a hardcore scene in the south as well that um, is sort of in opposition to what they call deep house and deep house is the stuff where there's a lot of singing in it and it, and it's kind of the gentler more soulful side of house and a lot of the original british rave pioneers had moved in that direction to distance themselves from these kids and these suburbanites and these east enders and soccer hooligans that had flooded the scene so as Reynolds says, quote, hardcore encompassed a multitude of styles united less by sound than by context and effect. They incited frenzy at big raves. And another point, he describes hardcore as a study in the science of manipulating drug, drugged, the reactions of drugged people to music. So it's, you know, you've got an audience that's flying on acid or, or riding on E and you discover that certain sound effects really send them over the top, and that's and that's what these guys are doing. And in southern hardcore, you've got a shared emphasis on the big sub sub audible bass that it has in common with northern bleeping bass, but it also uses a ton of break beats. And that's where, uh, I'm, as I mentioned, Todd Terry, American producer, and Fast Eddie and Tyree, and Brooklyn's Lenny D and Frankie Bones had experimented with hip house, but it had, had never really taken off to the extent that um, it probably deserved to. And and so it gets its revenge here in South London and the hardcore scene, because it's easier and cheaper to get funky beats by sampling breaks than by painstakingly programming a drum machine. And, and this is it, a really big split too, because even like going up through the nineties and two thousands and stuff like that, if you had a two room rave, it was the four, four room and the breakbeat room. And it really changed the entire vibe of everything. So you had all the Detroit techno and the Chicago house and the deep house, the garage sound and everything else like that being a four, four whoop, 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 whoop. And then the breakbeat stuff comes in and and man does it ever does it ever completely split everybody to the point where it's like don't even don't even mix these two rooms together because the people aren't exactly going to jive on it you know you gotta this, this is one thing this is another thing and a lot of people kind of gravitated towards one or the other 
Yeah, absolutely. And and the hip house stuff or the breakbeat stuff appealed to the greater London crowd who had been raised on jazz, funk, hip hop, and rare groove in the 80s. And again, those are all scenes that Brewster and Broughton in our first series kind of dismissed, but people were out at those clubs dancing to that stuff and grew up on it. And so it's not going to vanish. You can't memory hole a popular genre of music and this stuff uh, comes in big. And the main drivers of the scene are PJ and Smiley, who are the, the guys behind Shut Up and Dance, which is a group and a record label. They start out as their own sound system, the Heat Wave. They start Shut Up and Dance as a label in 1989, originally a white label. And they have a whole sort of rebellious ideology like they're big advocates of private radio pirate radio um they don't clear their samples they uh like to perform in dodgy warehouse raves you know no permission no royalty mixtapes um they thought they were gonna be a rap group they aimed themselves at the rap market they did tracks talking about public enemy and just got ignored by the rap scene but they got adopted by the acid house scene and kind of their pinnacle and the song that brought him down was their track Raving, I'm Raving, which went to number two in its first week of release in Britain. But it got, they got sued by Mark Cohn, whose song Walking in Memphis, they blatantly sample with no clearances. And, uh, you know, the, the record label was pulled. The record was pulled from the market after the lawsuit. They had to shut down the Suad label and um, reacted in sort of a predictable way, blaming racism, et cetera, et cetera, which I think is probably true to some extent in creating the legal context where you can't sample without permission. But nonetheless, since that time, we've been in a, in a marketplace. The, the bad guys won in that instance, and, and copyright control is more important than artistic freedom in this context. And so if yeah, a record- It's terrible. Company, yeah. The boot, bootleg culture was so huge uh, in, in the early rave days. And there was no rules as far as how much you could steal when you were making bootleg remixes, like not just of mainstream songs, taking the lyrics of the big hook, but of also just taking the latest rave hit and turning it up 40 beats per minute or something, throwing a bunch of hoovers on it. Like, uh, you know, legal, legally, obviously it's in a gray zone. And if your track gets too big, you could get in trouble, but, but morally it was, it was fine and everybody kind of embraced it. And that's, you know, when it comes to rave music, the general ethos of, uh, you know, uh, of the prodigy was, was like, fuck them in their law. And I love that. And it was joyous and lawless. And the worst thing I watched over the past 25 years is how the music scene has completely clamped back down on copyright. Sure. There's still some bootlegging and sampling going on, but it's depressing to see how much stuff gets nuked as soon as it goes up, how much stuff can't get around because it's outside the law. And even the mindset where the kids are being brainwashed into thinking they shouldn't sample or lift elements of songs, not just for like legal reasons, but because it's creatively bankrupt or, you know, it's uh, more just straight up morally wrong. And and that's terrible because everything is a remix. And the more you embrace that, the more creative you can be. Yeah, absolutely. Nobody created anything from whole cloth. Every single human being is walking in the footsteps of predecessors and anybody who's making music is stealing something from somebody that came along beforehand. And so frequently the, the, you know, the record companies had nothing to do with making the music and the artists whose legal apparatus are the most aggressive are frequently the most derivative thieves out there. I'm not going to name any names in this instance, but Anybody that is notoriously uptight and 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 lawsuit happy, I guarantee you, has 
swiped plenty of things from their influences and, and the hypocrisy is annoying. But let's go to Belgium and talk a little bit about what he calls mentasm madness. And uh, a, a glorious 18 months when Belgium ruled the world of techno. Um, and and the, he talked to the Brooklyn producer, Joey Beltram, but also Mundo Musique, Lenny D, uh, who were doing this kind of stuff that didn't necessarily get an audience in America where it was made, but it just got big in Belgium really fast. And and Joey Beltram gets a special shout out. Uh, Reynolds says that he revolutionized techno twice before he turned 21, first with Energy Flash, which is Reynolds' vote for the greatest techno track of all time, and then with Mentasm. Well, the group name was uh, Second Phase, and it was a partnership between Joey Beltram and Mundo Music. And, uh, you know, had this killer B mentasm sound that he made with the Roland Juno Alpha synth, hugely influential. He was consciously influenced by Black Sabbath and De Led Zeppelin. He was trying to get back to that heavy rock sound, which ironically, as we learned from Brewster and Broughton, was uh, a mainstay of disco floors in 68, 69, 70. So kind of bringing back that connection to the to the hard rock scene. And Belgian, Belgium had already sort of thrown off the fetters of import music in the 80s with the genre they called New Beat, which um, started out by them just taking high energy tracks from Britain and San Francisco and slowing them down from 45 to 33. And suddenly that got in the charts there in Belgium. But by the early 90s, Belgian, Belgian DJs were into the plus eight. They were speeding everything up, kind of probably a direct backlash to the New Beat thing. And a ton of local labels, Hit House, Big Time International, Who's That Beat, Beatbox, Music Man, a bunch of artists, Setup System, Cubic 22, T99, 80 Aum, Incubus, Holy Noise, Ming Syndicate, um, ton of influence of industrial and electronic body music. Electronic body music is another one of these 80s trends that I'd like to explore more because I think it gets short shrift in the English media just because it's uh, a European thing. So just tell me it's time to cue and we're kind of running uh, uh, behind on our cues, but let's go ahead and hear DJ Seduction, Come On from 1992. And that was DJ Seduction's "Come On." Why did you pick that one? Uh, that kind of throws us back to the uh, to the Southern London style of breakbeat hardcore. But it was just before it was about to become something called happy hardcore, which is something that I love and everybody else seems to hate. But I just wanted to show everybody how, you know, that shut up and dance breakbeat sound, how it just started, kept on getting faster and faster became jungle, became happy hardcore, became a whole bunch of different things. And it was very representative of, of that time just before, just before it, it, it hit that, that mutating uh, turning point and really started spreading its tentacles everywhere. Yeah, and Reynolds um, points out that like, there was a, a comparison at the time where people who had been in the rave scene from the beginning or earlier than the people that went to it in the 1992 era, were reacting against this heavy hard rock influence stuff, and and were moving towards the deep house, and also moving to what they called progressive. And he points out like, but they didn't study their rock history because the same exact backlash happened against early heavy metal 
all the smart kids dissed Black Sabbath and dissed Black dissed Led Zeppelin and Deep Purple and et cetera, et cetera, and got into things like prog rock, Emerson, Lake and Palmer, yes, King Crimson. And he says, nobody seemed to remember that nobody was listening to prog rock anymore, That, but Black Sabbath had become sort of this mainstay of, of metal and punk and alternative and grunge. And that, that was just another reason I think Reynolds put his money on hardcore and on this stuff coming out of Belgium, which is going to evolve into GABA, but I guess wasn't called GABA yet at this point. Is that correct? Yeah, it's funny how that uh, – I mean – once again, you're seeing a big genre splitting up into a bunch of different subgenres. So there's the UK hardcore stuff, which leans more towards breakbeat, hardcore, and jungle. And then you've got the Belgian hardcore, which now is placed more into a trance core category. But of course, in 1992, trance hasn't really been stamped in as a genre. So it's one of those things where you've got all these things happening and there's no names for them yet. But, you know, 20 years onwards, we figured out kind of where where we fit it in uh, when it comes to trying to figure out the etymology of of, of the musical genres. Yeah. And, and these clubs in Europe in particular, uh, he, he points out the club Wasp, Factory, Crazy Club, Eclipse, Interdance, and Storm were cloaked closer to an assault course than a fun night out. Um, there was one club in Cologne that was so hot the DJs wore oxygen masks. Berlin had the bunker, E-Work, Tresor. Uh, Tresor in particular was once a safe vault for a, a bank, like a giant vault. And now it's this sweat bath and warren of tunnels in the dark. Uh, London has some clubs, the Breakfast Club in Rage. The lingo is terms like faced, sledged, cabbage, monged, mental, kicking, banging, nosebleed, bone. Uh, the the fans are called e monsters, nutters. They're they're frying on ecstasy or whatever this drug they can get that simulates ecstasy. Uh, and police seizures are of ecstasy are up from 1990. They seized 5,500 kilos in Britain. 1991, they seized 66,000 kilos. So even just to put that into context, six, 66,000 kilos is about 220 million pills. Like I, it's, it's hard to exactly figure it out because who knows, you know, 50, uh, that what, what they consider in a kilo seizure, if it's a mix this or a mix that, but if you, if you bring it down to a dosage size and then you roughly rough it out, it's about 220 million pills. They confiscated, not what got through. Yeah, wow. <laughs> yeah, that's amazing. And, and yeah, that's not even counting all the pills that got confiscated by bouncers at raves and then uh, sold back to other kids inside the rave by those corrupt bouncers. And and there's a split here that even some of the groups that and labels that had been on the forefront of bleep and bass rapidly distanced themselves. We talked about Orbital, they viewed the Nutter approach as conformists, called them zombies at work, not Nutters on the weekend. And and that's something that goes back to the mods at, at the very minimum. It's this sort of working for the weekend philosophy of people have day jobs that don't require a lot of brain work. They trudge through that all, all week. They go out all weekend and get bombed on pills and and then are zombies again at work because they're having that massive come down from all the E and acid and, and amphetamine they took over the weekend. So that's an old cycle in, in Britain. And there's a ton of uh, class class warfare or class conflict in, in these distinctions and the way people sort of revolt. Are revolted by um, revolted by by the new kids and the new sounds coming along in the wake of the stuff they had started. So people like Orbital, who are key beginners of the scene, quickly walk away from from what it is. Um, 
but a whole bunch of new labels coming their wake. You know, Warp moves away from this stuff, but uh, Rising High, led by um, Caspar Pound, is is one um, quote that isn't about happiness. This music is more aggressive. It's more intense. So this guy wasn't about Happy House or, you know, Deep House. He wasn't about joy. He was about angst and and rage and you know had had his own group um the hypnotists that he he his nom de mix and also had the industrial high did songs like god of the universe the modern prometheus hardcore you know the score and night of the living ehead so uh, a bunch of fun stuff i i particularly like the hypnotist um and then you've got also lee newman and michael wells who put out stuff as tricky disco you've got john and julie uh GTO, Signs of Chaos, Force Mass Motion. So there's a, a ton of groups that are happily adapting the sound. They're, you know, some people are walking away from it, distancing themselves. And for every one of those, there's another, seems like five groups of producers who are embracing uh, the hardcore sound. And, and you can, and, you got to figure it's also not just about, uh, you know, walking away from it and disgust because uh, you think it's ridiculous, but just, uh, just on a practicality level, if you're not into going out and dancing at 150 beats per minute, you're just, it's just not going to be your cup of tea. So, you know, the split happens and you've got a bunch of people who keep on going to the clubs with the more soulful versions of house and techno um, because they're not interested in dancing to anything above 130 beats per minute. And meanwhile, you've got the ravers out there who are taking a real metalhead or industrial uh, kind of uh, ethos to the whole thing. They've got all of the album covers have, you know, like a, like a skull with radioactive material leaking out of them, no different than Megadeth, you know, and they're embracing all of, all of the, the trash that everybody's talking about them. And they're building this thing up to be, um, you know, every, everything that they talk about with, with, with Gabber and, and hardcore is probably there, but I don't think it is, it is, it's as pivotal or as foundational as maybe it's often made out to be like, you don't have to be crazy high on drugs to enjoy hardcore. It doesn't hurt, but you know, a lot of these people are driving around in the cars blasting hardcore the same way people would thrash metal and you might not get it, but uh, these people were really into it and it's, uh, and, and the surrounding hoopla around it that they enjoyed just chocolate people with yeah absolutely and meanwhile there's a whole um set of people on the scene who are making it big and we'll hear our next song this is alternate spelled a-l-t-e-r-n eight as in the number eight this is their tune evaporate spelled again with an eight at the end from 1992 and this was actually a hit alternate evaporate That was Alternate's Evaporate from 1992. He calls Alternate the Slade of um, of this era, which kind of hard on Slade, who had a bunch of massive hits in Britain in the 70s that were then covered by Quiet Riot and made into massive hits in America in the 80s. I'm talking about Come On, Feel the Noise, and Maybe We're All Crazy Now, uh, and, and many, many others. And, you know, Alternate misspelled deliberately all their song titles as well. And, and you know, he, he says Slade left nary a trace in the history of rock and roll, which I would kind of beg to differ, but I can also see what he's saying. And the alternate was in that same boat where they had a string of hits, 
but by the time they put an album together, nobody cared anymore. And and there's a whole bunch of people like the group Enjoy. Uh, did you look them up on Spotify or or YouTube Music or anything? Because I'm familiar only with the happy hardcore remixes of Enjoy tracks. Yeah, and they they barely have anything online. So they they had a number of top twenty, top thirty hits in this period, but um, yeah, left very little mark on history. And he points out that British Rave peaks in late 1991, 22 top 40 hits in 1991, 10 going into the top 10, uh, it had alternate false to the bass heads, bizarre ink shades of rhythm, Moby from America that we'll talk about later, uh, is, is hidden at this point, SL2, human resource, digital orgasm, K class two unlimited shaft. Um, and also a bunch of stuff that Reynolds is really partial to that just missed the top 40. And then he has a pretty interesting thing about the prodigy who went to number two with everybody in the place. And then um, a lot of people blame prodigy for killing house. Yeah. It's a curious thing. It was, I guess, largely because they get blamed for, for the, uh, what, what, what was it called in the book? The kitty, the kitty revolution where basically all of the, after prodigy released Charlie, which has samples from a, from a, from a public address, uh, advertisement for, for keeping safe from, from pedophiles. Once, once prodigy does that with Charlie and has a hit, all of a sudden you have like every single other, uh, you know, flash in the pan rave group putting out tracks that sample all the kids songs and stuff. So if you hated hardcore before, man, are you going to hate it now? Because all of a sudden you have a breakbeat remix of Sesame Street called Sesame E's Treat. And you're not going to like that. You're not going <laughs> to like that at all. Yeah, it's Toy Town Techno is what there we go. Fact. That's a good idea. Yeah. And 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 yeah, that stuff even penetrated my consciousness and I was not um impressed. And and also gives groups like the Shaman that we talked about in the Manchester episode a chance to do uh, a song they called Ebenezer Good, which went to number one, a giant piss take on the scene, you know, that basically sounds like they're saying E E is good, E is good, you know, like they're doing a big uh, pro drug ad but you also had things like he says another indicator that the scene was peaking was that you had tracks like two bad mice's hold it down and where where mouse which was an a and b side stall outside the top 40 assen's trip to the moon only makes number 38 so some really good stuff is starting to sort of sputter and not get as big as it might have uh, gotten um, and if you're if you're looking at, at where where usually the, the line gets drawn, I'd say it's probably like the top 10 stuff is probably annoying. And the stuff that's just outside the top 40, that's the real cream of the crop that you want to check out. Yep. Yep. It's just one of those things that's sometimes stuff that's super popular in the moment doesn't age well. It's, it's as old as music can be. And this is also a period where. Uh, you know, producers and DJs just keep speeding the stuff up and they're and they're getting to a point where not only is it difficult to impossible to dance to but it distorts the music itself and they start doing these chirpy mouse vocal samples because they've got to speed the vocals up so much to fit them in with these hyper breakbeats that they're they're doing and it, it's uh what he the, the 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 zeitgeist of the era is quote a hyperkinetic update of the shut up and dance sound with a drug crazed delirium and polyrhythmic density that suad never approached so yeah things like uh the the morse code oscillator riff which goes back a bit uh in-house um but becomes really big at this point urban shakedown some justice uh, really rides that high djs unite self-titled track chaotic chemistry space cakes weekend rush Desi desire so they've got um 
you know, they're flirting with sort of epileptic states. And he talks about in the book how people have this ecstatic experience right before they have an epileptic fit. But there's also some variations. One he quotes is nymphalepsy, which is, quote, an ecstatic frenzy caused by a desire for the unattainable. And pycnolepsy, which is a frequent, incredibly brief ruptures in consciousness. If you've ever been so fucked up that you feel like your consciousness is sort of like a film strip with little black spaces between your awareness, that's pycnolepsy. So people yeah, are it's, definitely... It's an, it's an interesting little aside. It's my favorite one of his in the book since I think chapter, since the prelude or the intro chapter where he kind of compares some of the dance music to a, to a circle jerk, which was, which was another, like not, <laughs> and not, not a, not a hypothetical uh, roll your eyes circle jerk, but an actual uh, masturbatory like thing. So open hands. Yeah. <laughs> in the ring. So, yeah. And, and he says in, by 1992, hardcore was quote, a bizarre composite of rush activated elements. This is back to the science of, of manipulating drug states. It's got the Joey Beltram stabs, the Italo piano riffs, break beats, melodramatic strings, and sped up ultra melismatic vocals and dub bass. So, um, yeah, it's it's created its own distinct style at this point, and and I think and it's rejected by all the cool kids. But uh, as we see, um, many of the hardcore movers become leaders of the jungle scene that comes down the pike. So you know you, you've got the Moving Shadows label, Suburban Bass, Reinforced, Ram, and Formation, all labels that go on to be big players in jungle. Producers like Rob Playford of Chaotic Chemistry and Two Bad Mice, DJ SS, Andy C of Desired State and Origin Unknown, Goldie, who's going to go on to become a big superstar in the jungle scene. He's in the refugee crew at this point, DJ High, Chrome and Time, Hyperon Experience. But there's also a bunch that don't go on to uh, become a force in the future. You've got the Noise Factory, who put out a dozen underground anthems on the Ibiza label, Third Party with My Mind, Futuroid, Breakage Number 4, um, these haywire contraptions. And he says, quote, music on Third Party, Ibiza, and Big City mirrored the subculture underside of the commercial pop rave explosion, a black economy or blag economy of rip-off raves, dodgy drugs, desperate pleasures, and bad attitudes. Tons of muggings at the raves, uh, bouncers who frisk you for drugs that they resell inside the venue, music for ravers who know the dream is a lie but still want to keep their eyes closed and enjoy it. And then he sort of looks back on the scene and compares um, British hardcore's golden age of 91 to 92 will one day be remembered as fondly as the American garage punk of the mid-60s. He says both were despised by hipsters of their time. 60s hipsters you know, loved cream, disavowed groups like the Seeds and the 13th Floor Elevators or the Shadows of Night. Um, and he expects hardcore to be revived by critics and collectors the way garage punk was by people like Lester Bangs and Lenny Kay. Lenny Kay put out the Nuggets uh, album set that codified garage punk as a sound and was a huge influence on 70s punk. And I think he's right. And I think he's also sort of been the lesser bangs of that because, you know, searching around Spotify and YouTube music and discogs, you see there's a ton of compilations now of white label records from this period of 90 to 92 that only came out in the last 
eight to 10 years after the next roundabout. It's, it's also interesting to note that, you know, while a lot of this, a lot of, a lot of the old school hardcore sounds kind of uh, either evolved into something else or just went away in general, there's a real revival right now amongst, amongst a lot of the, uh, the modern artists to bring all that old school sound back uh, using using the same same kind of samples and the and, and the same technology even to make that same rough sound and uh, it's it's really exciting so the music does seem to be getting its its due not just through simon reynolds being such a proselytizer in comparison to all the other artists on the on the genre but it, just in the artist kind of uh, rediscovering something that was kind of put down after it had its heyday and really kind of uh, showing everybody the, the, how powerful it is when you put it into the context of modern rave. Yeah, I watched a documentary that just came out that was uh, about rave from the context of the COVID era and and a ton of nostalgia for the days when you could just go out and party with masses of strangers and not worry about getting a fatal respiratory disease. And a lot of the young producers they were talking to are doing things like going on eBay to look for the same CD collections of breakbeats that these producers like the shut up and dance guys used to make these original records people weren't um that was another thing about this period they weren't generally going back to the crates this wasn't a crate digging scene where they're going back and going through these 70s funk albums and jazz records looking for that perfect drum break instead they've got uh, compilation albums of drum breaks that have already been put together for them and they and they were using those to get their drum breaks and then you know speeding them up and modifying them in all kinds of ways so, and so now you've got kids that are looking to recreate that exact stuff some of them are using cubase and, and running emulators so they can run those early 90s computer programmers programs and emulate an old 386 uh, pc to get that stuff and you know, everything old is new again, and it's good to see this stuff getting celebrated. And and it's well, good to hear that you enjoyed this chapter so much as well, because I know like leading up into it, there was like a little bit of a, of, of a dip in musical enthusiasm for some of it. But now this one here, you actually emailed me in the middle of the week and you're like, this stuff's really good. I'm really having a good time here. And I was like, all right, Nate. <laughs> yeah, it's it's my rockest. You know, the this Belgian stuff in particular pushed all my, I mean, I'm in basically a Black Sabbath cover band in the 90s. So, you know, this stuff really pushes my, my rockest buttons and my aggro buttons that I still have at, at my middle age. And so, yeah, and not to diss the stuff before, but I just felt like the Manchester scene had been something I was aware of at the time. And I didn't feel like it aged that well. Some of it I still enjoyed, but uh, it was a little bit of a come down. And this period of music, I thought, solved a lot of those problems. And particularly when they did rap, they rapped a lot better than uh, the people who are rapping with, say, The Shaman. And, and a lot of the hip house stuff is kind of undone by mediocre rapping. And this scene doesn't have very much rapping. But when they do have voices, uh, it's more credible. And it's just more focused on noise and, and aggression. And it's just right up my alley. So... As Reynolds says, it's anti-humanist noise, naked drugginess. It's not so much music as a science of inducing and enhancing the e-rush. And he says that hardcore was just the latest twist on the traditional contours of working class leisure in Britain. And that's where he got into the whole thing about the mods and how, you know, living for the weekend and getting so blitzed on the weekend that then you're miserable for the whole week. But it takes it all the way back to the St. Vitus dance and, you know, medieval uh, Europe. and 
And it's um, a system where, you know, it's a product of an era where people believe that they couldn't beat the system, so they're going with the flow. And he quote, it says, it simultaneously affirmed Rave's utopianism, yet hinted at the illusory nature of this heaven on earth. And that he has a little section called Rage to Live. And that was hardcore was where Britain's somnambulist youth, the sleepwalking youth of Britain, uh, let out all the intensity absence in a week of drudgery into a few hours of fervor. So here's to those hardcore kids and the mark they made on music history. Ryan, if amen. You wrap this up, amen. That'll do it. All right, we'll be back next week and we're going to talk about the Spiral Tribe and Krusty Rave. Follow the Let It Roll podcast on Twitter at Let It Rollcast and check out our website at LetItRollPodcast.com. Next week, Nate and Ryan will be back to talk about the Spiral Tribe and the Krusty Raver Alliance that saw the last gasp of mass illegal raves in Britain. Let It Roll is a Pantheon podcast, and you can listen to more great podcasts at www.pantheonpodcasts.com. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.